Before we cover things, you know, we've got a lot of ground to cover this episode. I think the most important thing that we can all agree on is that Kira looks really good in the Starfleet uniform, doesn't she? Is that, is that... Tell me I'm not the only one who thinks that. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making a joke. What I really think is the ion cannons, I forget what they call it, don't affect the Klingons because of basically a defect? Sure, whatever. By the way, we find out... Oh my god, it's with my yawns today. We find out that the Klingons are outnumbered. They have a fleet of 1,500 ships, which is insane. But we find out that... Uh, the Dominion outnumbers them 20 to 1, which means the Dominion has about 30,000-ish ships between the Cardassians, Breen, and actual Jem'Hadar. Okay, I'm with that. So then they just start to discuss tactics. They're going to do hit-and-run tactics, destabilization tactics, basically trying to harry and harass. Uh, skirmisher tactics, if you will. Okay, that makes sense. Then they realize that Damar, who is running a resistance movement, needs to do the exact same thing. Nice little parallel there, you know, but we're, we're outnumbered and outgunned, so we need to outthink. Okay, I'm with it, I'm with it. So then we're going to send Kira. <sighs> Kira briefly brings up the whole, you know, Demark murdered, uh, Zial thing. If I might be so bold, obviously none of this was really planned in advance. No, seriously. They know they wanted to do something with Demar's character, but it was just a blank slate for the longest time. They introduced the drinking element because they wanted it to be a part of his character, which they could expand on later, and it turns out the drinking element was, in fact, the, the, the fact that he's so worked up over the Dominion thing. So that, that worked out. But all of that is, once again, um, backloaded storytelling rather than front-loaded storytelling. They didn't plan that out in advance. Which makes some of these things not really line up well. Kira brings up a brief... Uh, argument about the Zial thing. Garrick doesn't mention it at all, and neither of them confront him about it at any point. Now, all of that makes sense. Even the reasons they did that makes sense. They did it because it would interrupt the overall flow and drag his past through the mud, which, you know, obviously that's not really going to work for the direction they want the character to go in. But the problem is that did happen, so you got to acknowledge or deal with that in some manner. Maybe having him, like, maybe the initial thing wasn't even the Dominion at all. It was just freaking out over the fact that he killed Zial, that he killed Dukat's daughter, that he killed a Cardassian, and have that be a part of his redemption arc, that he has been absolutely guilt agonized over this for years. Or, yeah, we're at the years, Mark, at this point. Just, just food for thought, just tossing out ideas. But either way, regardless, let's move on. So they skip over all that. Now, I'm actually going to talk about this episode differently than I usually do. We're going to address each plot point, because we got the the Stalling plot point, the Galron plot point, the Section 31 plot point, and the Damar plot point. So, uh, I've already ta started talking about the Damar plot point, so let's go ahead and address that. So, Garrick shows up. They, they're, they're there. And Garrick cuts right through the BS. All right, we're on the same side. The Dominion's the enemy. Ah. And he says it so pleasantly, which is funny, because of all the people there, he's probably the most pragmatic. Kira insists on a cellbound structure, which, yep, okay. Naroon argues against it, because he's a moron. Uh, sorry, Roussot. Roussot. <laughs> Roussot. I keep wanting to call him Naroon. The guy played by the actor who plays Naroon, Roussot. And then there's this wonderful bit where they say, no, that's a place defended by Cardassians. We're not going to attack that. Now, what I find most amusing about this is Kira's main argument is, yo, they're collaborators, so screw them. 
Now, that's kind of horrible, but what she says afterwards is, in my opinion, far more convincing. The second the Dominion realize that the Cardassian resistance refuses to, to kill Cardassians, they'll just use Cardassians as body, body shields. Meat walls. They will have no hesitance about doing that whatsoever. And there goes your resistance. They have to show that they're willing to do that, otherwise they are literally creating a weakness in their own force. That is an uncomfortable and unpleasant reality, and, coincidentally enough, is also the line that convinces Damar. This then leads to a brief side bit, which I'm going to talk about briefly. But I want to address this first, because, well, I did this out of order. See, Damar recognizes the pragmatic reality. He doesn't like her. In fact, he hates her, but he's putting that aside because she's willing to help. He's willing to. He's, he's thankful for the Federation's help. He's thankful for Kira's help. He knows he needs it. He's willing to listen to reason. He is, to put it as bluntly as I can, a surprisingly good leader under the circumstances. This is actually the reason that the character of Rasat was actually crafted. It was so that someone amongst the Cardassians would be the obstinate one to allow Damar to be the reasonable one. I mean this out of character, not in character. So that, you know, Damar could be the one who has to realize the reality of what this kind of circumstance takes and be willing to put up with it. Which is exactly what Kira is doing, and Garrick for that matter. They're like, okay, we don't like him, and we hate the Cardassians in general, but we need this. It's actually wonderfully Star Trekian. It's dark Star Trek, but it's still Star Trek. We are enemies, but that is more our enemy. So, allies? <laughs> so, Odo is accused, basically, of being a collaborator. I've spoken about this before, but Kira is a little bit too black and white on the issue of collaborators. Now, I don't blame her. I didn't go through that. I've never been through anything like that. I, I get it. But I bring this up because I love how wonderfully flawed it makes her. It does add a nice little layer of, for lack of a better term, humanization to her character. That she has such a sensitive point about collaboration. That she doesn't like to admit the fact that Odo was a collaborator, by her definition of the words. She doesn't like to acknowledge the idea that collaborators are anything other than acceptable targets. And this ties back into what I said earlier. You'll notice the first thing she said to get them to all agree to go kill their fellow Cardassians, who may or may not be innocent, is, well, you know, just, just they're collaborators. They're, it's, it's, that's an acceptable target, right? And I keep using that phrase on purpose, because anybody who's heard me talk about that phrase knows that that is a very specific thing used in fiction, to make it so that players playing a video game, or viewers watching a show or a movie, don't feel bad about the stormtroopers that are being mowed down, or the zombies, or the Nazis, or whatever, because they're acceptable targets. You don't have to feel bad. She has mentally adjusted the word collaborator into the acceptable target range. And I'd like to think that on some level she realizes how, frankly, inaccurate of a perspective that is, because it isn't a black-and-white situation. And she knows that. And that conflict between her thought and her coping mechanism and how she deals with all this is why she's so upset and why she gets so frustrated and loses herself for just a bit there. It's very human, and I like that. I also like Damar being a leader because it is immediately contrasted by Gowron. There we go. Kind of, kind of made the segue work. <clears throat> See, Gowron is not that pragmatic, 
not that good strategically, not that good militarily, and doesn't realize that the situation needs you to do certain things in order to win. If you asked me, I don't know, eight, ten years ago, back when I used to discuss Star Trek a lot with my friends, what I thought of Garon, I'd say he's the one good Klingon politician. Over the years, and going back through TNG and DS9, I, I think I've talked about this before, that opinion has changed. I don't think Garon is a good Klingon politician. We actually see other Klingon politicians who are frankly better at it than he is. I think he's just very particular at how he manages to move through the system and in some ways has gotten lucky more than once, given the people he has backing him. I mean, Gowron did have Worf, Picard, and the Federation at his back more than once. So, <clears throat> I also posited the idea that he's very suggestible. He comes up with this grand idea. Okay, I'm going to come in and I'm going to do something that in Klingon politics is not only perfectly acceptable, but actually a brilliant move. He's going to remove his political opponent by showering him with praise, glory, medals, and rewards and then removing him from command. In that one move, he has ensured that nobody can look at him and say, oh, you're just, you're, you're dishonorably removing him. No, he's not. He's a wonderful warrior, and he should be praised. He should be allowed to experience that war on the front. This is all fake honor, of course. I should clarify that. This is all fake honor, or some people call it external honor. But he adheres to the rules, because that's what it all is about. The rules of fake honor. No, you have been done wonderfully and tremendously, and I have honored you, and you have honored me, and now you can go and obtain even greater honor in battle. And I'll command the forces in your absence. And just like that, situation resolved. The problem is he then actually takes command of the forces, and then he decides to apply Klingon political structure to the entire galaxy. He wants the Klingons to be the ones to gain the glory of having defeated the Dominion. Because in external honor term uh, terminology, that means that they win. They get all the brownie points, they're way up on top. And that's what Garon's always about. The problem is his plan is starkly stupid. How many of you ever played strategy games? Either video or, uh, you know, uh, tabletop, pen and paper? Or real life. <laughs> War games are a thing. If you have an inferior force to the enemy, the last thing you want to do is a move. And just to explain that really quick, it means selecting your entire group, telling them to attack in a direction, and that's the only order you give. At that point, you're basically letting math decide the combat, which works when you have an overwhelmingly superior force. But if you have an overwhelmingly inferior one, all it means is you'll get crushed. You need to use tactics, strategy, baiting advances, or... Uh, hit and runs, or trying to attack where they aren't. Fabian tactics, which is actually a personal favorite of mine. I love studying that stuff. But anyways, there's all sorts of things you can do when you have an inferior force. A-moving is the opposite of all of that. But that's what Gowron suggests. And I wanted to really stress this because it is actually, literally, the stupidest possible strategy he could come up with. It would actually be less devastating to t order all the ships to self-destruct on the spot. Because at least that way, the, you know, it's like, ah, death with honor, rather than being crushed mercilessly by the Dominion forces. <laughs> now, of course, all of this makes perfect sense if you were to presume he is going to win these engagements. But he doesn't understand as much as 
I, a real-life, pathetic human being who... I, I know that it sounds strange, but I've never fought in any wars. I have no military experience. I mean, I've, I've, got, I've studied it. But whoop-de-doo, right? And yet, I know more about strategy than Galron does. The real-life me knows more than him. And, and I'm not saying this to puff myself up. I'm saying this to show just how astonishingly pathetic he really is. Because all he's thinking is, well, if we get all of this... Then we win. We get all that glory, all that external honor. We can make we can make demands and de- uh, require concessions of the Romulans and the Federation. It'll be wonderful. And of course, we get our first pick of territory, claiming all that land for the Klingon Empire. You moron. Garon is a terrible leader, and Garon. The name of this episode is uh, "When It Rains." <laughs> There's obviously a bunch of bad news in this one, but there's really two big ones. And this is the first one. Gowron and the destruction of the Klingon front. Which, by the way, I'm just going to spoil, nearly costs us the war. I just want to stress that. As I've said many times, the Dominion almost wins this war like seven times. And this is like time number, I think, seven, actually. I think this is the final time where the Dominion almost wins the war. Because of Gowron's stupidity. One person. And a lot of people unwilling to say no to him. We'll get more into that later. That, that plot line is going to continue. For now, we need to talk about <clears throat> Kai Wynn. So Dukat gets blinded. For some reason. Okay, real talk. This is stupid. This makes no sense based on everything we know before and after. Uh, Dukat is the loyal minion of the Pirates and is, in fact, their emissary who will eventually usher them in. There is no reason for them to blind him whatsoever. Now, <laughs> I can just hear Lord Reloaded saying, well, wait, but... No, so here's the problem. This is done for out-of-character reasons. As I mentioned before, they pushed the Dukat Kaiwin story a little bit too quickly, and they basically ran out of material. So they wanted to do something to stall it. Just come up with something to stall it. So, ah, Dukat gets blinded, and then he gets tossed out on the street. Okay. That's, like I said, that's stupid. But at the time, and every time I've rewatched this, including this time, I think, ah, it's such a great idea. And I I know what you're thinking. Well, I thought you said it was stupid. Hear me out. I love the idea that the Pa Wraiths and Kai Win use and abandon, discard Pau Dukat, just like he would normally do for others. Now, spoiler alert, in the final episode, she will have a very last-minute redemption and then die. And then he will be the devil. He'll be the embodiment of evil, because that's what they wanted. Wouldn't it have been more interesting if he had had the last-minute redemption and she was the embodiment of evil? Now, I'm actually open to debate on this point. I've actually discussed this many times with people in person. But I love the idea that Kai Wynn, who is just this horrible, horrible person since the first moment she showed up, and has never been anything but, um, finally basically embraces her role as the freaking devil of the setting. And just watch the scenes in this episode. I'm sure at least some of you have been watching this alongside me. Watch the scenes where she has him removed and tossed out, and she's so smug. I'm sure some time being... Don't worry, the Bajorans are nice people. You'll probably be able to beg your way into enough money for food and maybe even shelter every night. (laughs) And then she sits down, and she's just all smug, and she even gives a little grin. It all speaks to me of her 
basically supplanting him. Think of it Sith style, if that helps you. She started out as the one he was manipulating, and now she has replaced him and usurped his spot for the Pares. And that works awesomely for me. It's just none of that actually happens because this was just a stalling tactic. <sighs> Anyways. Final thing to talk about. Section 31 and the virus. So Bashir, first of all, we've got to drag out the Ezra Bashir thing for some reason. I just, just kiss, just go. I don't even care at this point. God. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> just the teasing of it is driving me mad. But <laughs> the Starfleet Medical stonewalls Bashir. He finds out that Odo is infected with the disease. That's the other bad news. Odo's infected. Oh crap. And that means Odo is super dying. This also adds some interesting hindsight. But speaking of hindsight, we find out that he was infected three years ago uh, during the events of... Uh, oh, I forget the name of the episode. Uh, Homefront. Back on Earth. I don't think that was ever 100% confirmed, actually. But it, the, the timeline lines up, and everyone just kind of assumes that's true. But anyways, this is a topic. Before we get to the topic, though... Do you think Starfleet Medical really is just that much of a bureaucracy, or do you think people were deliberately stonewalling him because of the, the security issues involved? I like to think the latter, personally, especially given the way Lieutenant What's-His-Face responds. The actual fake file, that's Section 31. And I point that out because I don't think Section 31 was pulling strings at Starfleet Medical. I think they were doing that all on their own, just trying to stonewall him. I do think, however, that Section 31 is the one who faked the file and then sent it after him. Quark shows up to help. Nice little scene. Don't let him know. Don't let him know. <laughs> and of course, this is the the great and horrible irony of this. That virus wins the war by itself. The only reason the Dominion signs a peace with the Federation is, is in exchange for the cure to that virus they infected them with. Now, we could talk at length about the post-DS9 Dominion situation, and Star Trek Online certainly continues forward with that idea. But the general thrust of this that I want to get into is the that virus was... It's basically a plot coupon, isn't it? It's absolutely mandatory and necessary for the success and victory of the heroes, but nobody knew it at the time, and that makes it interesting. Now... Some of my viewers may know uh, I tend to debate stuff on stream that may or may not be on topic. And one of the things I've debated at length is this exact point uh, with several of my viewers, including one, Sildir. And this point, the reason this is so relevant is consider the timeline. The Dominion at the time were not the threat that we knew they were. We knew they were a threat, but they were a threat, like the Klingons were, or the Romulans were, or just about anyone else, really. And yet, at that point in time, that far back... Section 31 deliberately infected Odo with this super virus, which is basically magic because the masters of genetic manipulation somehow don't know how to fix it, which is ludicrous, but moving on. But they infect him with this on the off chance that he will someday communicate it to the rest of the collective, which is what happens, and you know, he communicates it and blah, blah, blah. So they're all infected. Woo! Okay, cool. That was before they became an existential threat, though. Now, I point that out because if they had done that later, when the Dominion fully declared war and was basically waging a campaign of effective genocide against the Alpha and Beta Quadrants, yeah, 
That is the right call. At that level of threat, at that existential threat, which is the level at which your very existence, your, your ability to continue breathing is being threatened, then yes, that is an acceptable call. Here's the great irony. If they had waited until they were an exist existential threat, they probably wouldn't have been able to do it. Because by the time the Dominion really went full tilt, the Dominion had no more access to the wormhole. Which means the only founder they could have infected is the female changeling and none other. And that's, uh, that's relying on a lot of long shots for that to actually happen or, at all. <laughs> the only reason the founders as a whole are infected by this is because they did that back when the communication lines were still open. Now that's dark. I'm actually going to terminate there. We can talk back and forth about this. I'm very curious of your thoughts. Ultimately, if I'm being honest, my thoughts are this is more of an out-of-character thing than an in-character thing. This is yet another byproduct of backloaded storytelling. And they kind of needed it to line up the way it did because they kind of needed the virus to end the war because the way they designed the Dominion is there's only two possibilities. The Dominion walk away for a couple centuries before they come back to conquer them all, or the Dominion are wiped out and... I can imagine, even though I don't necessarily agree, why they would want to avoid wiping out the Dominion. <sighs> Next episode, we'll see things get even worse, if you can imagine that. I'll see you there, guys.